Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Today is our final lesson in Haggai. And uh, boy, just another great book from the Old Testament. And I was this week I was asked by Glenn Sudnick. Some of you remember Glenn and Cindy. They were members here for uh, a while, and uh, they, they retired to Minnesota. I just haven't quite figured that out yet. But um, normally you'd get the family to move down here, but they moved up there to be with family. And uh, yeah, Glenn listens to our sermons and stays in touch and Glenn, uh, he asked me, you know, what is your favorite part of the Bible this week? And I told him, you know, I don't really have one. And uh, every book that I finish tends to become, uh, at that moment, my favorite. And uh, therefore, I just now have increasing expectations every time we start a, a new book of the Bible again. And uh, without question, though, Haggai's focus on Christ our Savior has been an enormous inspiration to me, and I pray it has been to every one of you as well. Um, I've heard there are some who are chomping at the bit to start the book of Acts. Well, I'm ready, and, uh, and that is going to be an, an outstanding book for us to study, and, uh, but it doesn't come without a word of warning first. Folks, we will be marching uh, headlong straight into a, an all-out battlefield in the book of Acts. After he had pastored for just 11 years, John MacArthur was preaching through the book of Acts uh, when his church just about blew to pieces. And uh, I shared with our elders previously um, to not expect Acts to be some kind of a safe harbor, you know, something just gentle uh, in the water that it'll be easy to float in. Uh, boy, the material in Acts is going to be challenging. It will drive us as Christians uh, headlong into spiritual warfare. And uh, churches, boy, churches who dare to imitate the actions of the early church the Acts of the Apostles, they're destined to experience a renewed passion, a spiritual rejuvenation, likely numeric growth and great joy, Uh, but at the same time, we can rest assured that uh, there's going to be vicious attacks from the enemy uh, when we dare to take the gospel out there into Satan's lair. And uh, Satan will be ready. You know, Mar- MacArthur saw, his, saw Satan's beast uh, rear his head uh, just as the church of Ephesus did. It was from within. And uh, as Acts 20 verse 28 tells us, savage wolves arose from within the flock uh, trying to draw disciples after themselves. It was not a coincidence that Jeff Rogan this week uh, sent me a couple messages by MacArthur, and uh, both of them included this, this struggle that, uh, that he had when some of those fireworks went off at Grace Community Church. 
And uh, boy, the reality is, folks, if your church is, um, well, it remains passive, it is content, and uh, enjoying only potlucks and, and campfire sing-alongs, uh, you can get along good for a while. Everything can go fine. But when you announce plans to invade enemy territory, when, when you uh, seek to invade what Satan holds as his and proclaim release to the captives, that they might be released in the name of Christ, uh, you better be wearing the full armor of God. As, uh, as the Apostle Paul told those elders in Ephesus, be on guard for yourselves and all the flock. Uh, of course, we need not fear. Christ has already secured the victory at Calvary. And a countdown to battle and an expectation of this victory is the essence of our text today. I, I've titled this message, The Final Countdown to Acts. I believe someday we may look back at this, this closing word from Haggai and, and thank God that, that He prepared us in advance for battles that are to come. And uh, this, this message from verses 20 to 23 in Haggai chapter 2 uh, is the final countdown uh, where we see the Lord preparing His people for a battle that is going to rage after He shakes the heaven and the earth. Before I read here, a couple of reminders from our previous studies, uh, our most recent lessons. Number one, the shaking of the heavens and earth in verse 21. It, it does, just as it did back in verse 6, refer to Christ's ratifying of the new covenant at Calvary through his blood. That shaking occurred as we look back. Just prior to verse 7 where we find God will promise to shake all the Gentile nations. He will plunder Satan's house in order to build his own. The battle that then arises in verse 22, I believe, describes Christ's conquering of the Gentile nations through our preaching of the gospel. Number two. Zerubbabel, as we learned from our earlier studies in Zechariah, he is a reflection of Christ, the Christ who is to come, uh, the Christ upon whom God will bestow his signet ring. The signet ring in, in those cultures was the sign of authority. It carried the stamp of the king. It's the authority of the king. And... Um, Christ becomes this king. We see this, this reign of Christ. It's inaugurated in the book of Acts as believers begin to be rescued from the domain of darkness, the lair of Satan, and then transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You'll see that uh, uh, written in Colossians 1 and verse 13. Therefore, again... I believe our current spiritual battle is what is being described in the graphic imagery 
of verse 22, and I'll give some further evidence why I believe that to be so. Uh, there is also an alternate interpretation. Uh, I'll make brief mention to that as well. But first, let's read from Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by, by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You know, last Sunday, I, uh, I stated that the date of this prophecy is very important. Now, it's not only because it assures that Israel's springtime had passed and, and that that also the seed has already been planted. The date also helps to reassure that all of these prophecies in chapter 2 are united as one. Folks, these aren't entirely different sermons on entirely different days. This word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the same day. That's like having morning and afternoon sermons. Which means this final prophecy, these last four verses, supplies the interpretive framework to understand the earlier prophecies. It's not difficult to recognize that Haggai remains on the same subject matter of shaking the heavens and the earth as he was on in verse 6. Additionally, the seed of blessing to come, which we're, we were studying last week in verses 18 and 19, the seed of the blessing to come was promised earlier on this same day. The Lord declared at the end of verse 19, yet from this day I will bless. And now the source of this blessing is unveiled in verses 20 through 23. You follow me? The seed is Christ. And once God shakes the heavens and the earth at Calvary, that seed is going to begin to bear fruit under the reign of Christ. It's Haggai's sidekick, Zechariah. Their ministries overlapped. They, they, at this point now, are both preaching to Israel, the same, same audience at the same time, two prophets speaking together. And Zechariah is the one who teaches that Christ is the ruler, who, like Zerubbabel, builds God's temple. So it's not going to be by might. It's not going to be by power. But it's going to be through God's Holy Spirit. We've studied this enough in the last 
few weeks and months that we know what's being talked about here. Christ is he upon whom God bestows his signet ring. This is the same Christ uh, that we saw last week in Zechariah chapter 6, who becomes a a high priest, who, who wears a crown like Yeshua or Joshua, a priest with a crown. But then we discovered, well, he's He's nicknamed Branch. Why is he nicknamed Branch? Because he is going to branch out to all of the nations to build the temple of the Lord. Zechariah says a second time for emphasis, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he, says Zechariah, will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace between the two offices. So there will be peace between priest and king as they're united into one office, and that is Christ the King. It is He who they are talking about. And by having interceded for our sins through His blood, let me ask this question. Is Christ already serving as high priest today? Nod your heads, yes. Without question. You can't read the book of Hebrews and not come to that conclusion that Christ is our high priest. Jesus also then is king, wearing God's signet ring, and according to Zechariah 6.13, sits today on his throne. Therefore, verses 20 through 23, that was a future prophecy at the time of Haggai, but it is today a fulfilled prophecy for Christ's church. Be careful when the Old Testament talks about things that are in the future. Many of those things that were future for the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ in the New The book of Acts is going to reinforce that, you know, as our high priest, Christ is today sitting and ruling from his throne uh, over all his kingdom, uh, being seated at the right hand of God. That's his his position. And uh, the conclusion of Daryl Bach, some of you may have read as an esteemed professor at Dallas Seminary, is this. Yes, this describes Christ currently reigning from his Davidic throne. Now, we know that is in a spiritual sense right now and that that throne is going to be transported uh, back when he comes to rule on earth. They're going to get a big U-Haul and it's going to be transported and Christ is going to reign on earth later, but he is already reigning as king today. We don't have to wait for that to happen. And Christ ruling as God's signet ring, along with his current role as high priest, assures that the offices of priest and king are one. They're united. Uh, Just as Zechariah promised, it's already combined. Christ is on his throne. Uh, Don't be confused. Uh, Christ's position Uh, of being seated at the right hand of God. In our culture, very often we're going to conclude that, uh, 
well, that means he's kind of coming in second place. He, he's, he's sitting next to God, but he's, he's kind of behind in the race, but eventually he'll pull it off in the end and he'll become uh, the, the main player. No, that is not how this culture uh, understood the right hand. In this culture, the, the place of highest esteem was the right hand and indicates that Christ has an equal standing with God, as does the fact he's wearing the signet ring. Sitting at God's right hand, Christ rules as God. Verse 23 is currently, is currently fulfilled. These serve as some of the contributing reasons why I view this entire passage as fulfilled today. You see verse 23 with the signet ring, it is currently fulfilled. Uh, verse 21 that is pointing at the ratifying of the new covenant at Calvary, that is most assuredly fulfilled. And therefore it seems that unless there is very strong evidence to the contrary, uh, we should view verse 22 as fulfilled as well. Well, you're asked, what does it matter? What's the matter? Well, it's because many insist that Christ isn't ruling from his throne as king today. But if that were true, then Christ is also not serving as our high priest today. And we have not been transferred into his kingdom today. And he obviously, therefore, then would have no power to overthrow other kingdoms today. So whether Christ is seated on his throne, it matters, as the Apostle Peter is going to, to reveal on the day of Pentecost. The alternate rendering, the alternate ending to the story is that none of this passage has happened yet today. And thereby... None of this chapter has happened yet today. Folks, that interpretation is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. The new covenant has been signed, sealed, and delivered. Christ is ruling from his throne. This, this was all fulfilled at Calvary. Christ is God's signet ring, and we are, therefore, engaged in a spiritual battle for the souls of men under the sovereign reign of Christ, our King. This is a very real battle. Jesus said this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. If you were in adult Sunday school today, we talked a little about those three, three letters, A-L-L. What does all mean? It means all. And when Christ says that all authority has been given to me, he means it. You can hang your hat on it. Ephesians 1 verse 19 reveals it was at the point of Christ's resurrection when God displayed the surpassing power of His greatness, quote, which He brought about in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he, speaking to God, put all things in subjection under his feet. And he gave him as head over all things to the church. That's Christ. Christ is king, is sovereign ruler today. Uh, therefore, I view, you have to decide whether you agree with me or not, I view verse 22 as a prophecy that brilliantly depicts the spiritual battle that currently rages against principalities and world powers of darkness. The alternate interpretation suggests that verse 22 describes the final battle when Christ comes back a second time. Well, we know there will be a great battle when Christ returns, uh, but it's going to be swift. When the Son of Man appears in the clouds, Luke 21 tells us Christ's power and His glory will be displayed as so great that men will faint in fear. I don't think anybody really believes men are going to be literally mounting chariots and horses with riders and wielding swords in order to oppose Christ's return to earth. I mean, where do you even get a chariot nowadays? I'm a searching on the internet. I haven't been able to even find one. So obviously, there's some imagery here that we need to apply. Chariots and horses with riders wielding swords, that is figurative language. It describes a great conflict, which of course, listeners in Haggai's day could easily understand. And ever since God shook the heavens and the earth at Calvary, folks, the church has been engaged in a mighty conflict between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the earth. And because Christ is king, he is able to say, Go therefore, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go therefore and make disciples out there. Here's a word about the uh, historic understanding of this passage from John Calvin. He writes, quote, Hence, the prophet Haggai affirms here that there would be a wonderful work of God which would shake the heaven and the earth. It is therefore necessary that this should be applied to Christ. For it was, as it were, a new creation of the world when Christ gathered together the things that were scattered. As the apostle says, in the heaven and the earth. You can reference Colossians 1.20. When he reconciled men to God and to angels, when he conquered the devil and restored life to the dead, 
when he shone forth with all his own righteousness, then indeed God shook the heaven and the earth, as he still shakes them at this day when the gospel is preached. Calvin adds, for he, speaking of Christ, forms anew the children of Abraham. Uh, excuse me, the children of Adam. And he, he forms them in his own image. And Calvin writes, this spiritual regeneration then is such an evidence of God's power and grace that he may justly be said to shake the heavens and the earth. We are going to see a war erupt in the book of Acts. It's when early Christians were martyred simply for taking the gospel to the nations. And today we remain engaged in this war, a spiritual battle that often manifests itself in the physical realm. Stephen was stoned. James was beheaded. Peter and Paul were imprisoned multiple times and then both executed. Their battle in the first century, it's going to result in 11 of the 12 apostles being martyred. Believers in Christ in the first century are going to be burned at the stake and fed as sport to lions and other wild beasts in the Colosseum. Every new place that the gospel is preached, that seed of the gospel, when it is scattered, it is going to bear fruit. But it is also going to be accompanied by a great conflict between kingdoms in every place the repentance of sins, and the lordship of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. At Pentecost, the apostles boldly began preaching in Jerusalem. Folks, it quickly turned into a fiery crucible of imprisonment and persecution and death. You're like, not for us. We hope not. What was it that the apostles did that was so awful? They preached the truth. And in this closing, pas closing passage of Haggai, I believe it serves as the final countdown to Calvary and the opening verses of Acts. Did you know that secular communities... They love Christians. They love them. Christians who stay at home and keep repentance and forgiveness of sins available exclusively through Jesus Christ completely to themselves. Our secular society loves that. Communities will applaud us when we feed vagrants as long as we don't call on those same vagrants to repent of their sins, 
to place their faith in Jesus Christ, to turn away from the drugs and the alcohol and the addictive substances in order to become a new creation in Christ Jesus, leading to a productive life, and then go get a job. Boy, at that point, you have gone too far. That, that's offensive. The world would rather that we just leave those vagrants alone. Our country is fine with Christians serving in politics as long as we agree to check our faith at the door. It's only those who you know, accept evolution and climate change as science who support a woman's right to murder, and who believe definitions of gender and marriage are fluid, they are the only ones that are permitted to freely express their firmly held beliefs in the halls of Congress. Boy, is the world turned upside down or what? And folks, this is the reality in which we live. Therefore, whenever we proclaim the truth that people everywhere must repent of their sins and trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ for their forgiveness, Christians need to realize you are not going to be entering a safe space. It's not going to be warm and fuzzy, no matter how nicely you, you put it. The world's not friendly territory. Instead, we are entering a war zone. And this is what apostle, the Apostle Paul was in when he proclaimed, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He'd already experienced that the world wasn't very friendly towards his gospel. He'd been imprisoned and beaten and, and so many other grotesque treatments. We live in a world that demands that we sign a, well, a treaty of acceptance and, and, and our unconditional surrender. And their strategy has been, it's been quite successful, by the way, their strategy is to redefine our Savior and our religion as passive and docile. By and large, our surrounding culture has, well, successfully tamed Christianity and shaped it into something that, well, they find marginally palatable. As long as we keep the true gospel to ourselves. They say, well, as long as we constrain or restrict our religious activities uh, to visiting hospitals or caroling at Christmas or, or coddling people's hands, you know, as long as you keep your Christianity suitable for the Hallmark Channel, well, well then we'll tolerate you as our neighbors. But if you dare to start telling people that they are sinners and they are doomed to hell and the only solution that is offered is 
faith in Jesus Christ, oh, the battle is going to rage. Because Satan and his, his minions, they have taken the nations, including this nation, captive. Entertainment and the media, it's theirs. Broadly, the school boards, it's theirs. The courts, broadly, they're theirs. Most of Washington, D.C., definitely theirs. And we who are Christians, we have to make a choice. You know, we could continue to use tactics that have repeatedly proven to fail. We've battled on their turf. That's what we've done. Christians have tried, while giving our hard-earned money towards more uh, effective political campaigns and better advertising, purchase a greater number of political ads than, than the others. Some have accepted an invitation uh, as a guest to be a token Christian on The View, where all the heathen attack uh, and demean our religion in front of a national audience. In other words, we could continue to do what, well, the majority, uh, the moral majority attempted to do in the 80s. Lose. As Christians have now invested decades discovering that those who are moral in America are a tiny minority. Now, folks, I'm all for Christians in public service. That is a different sermon for a different text on a different day. But appeasing people through politics and pacifying the populace, which is what you have to do to get elected, tell people what they want to hear, is not where Christ's battle will be won. It's never worked. We must engage the same way the apostles and the other early Christians did in the book of Acts. We have to preach Christ in their territory. To our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members, to, to people we meet in the store, others we encounter throughout our day. We, we must encourage everyone to find forgiveness, to seek forgiveness for their sins in Jesus Christ. Everyone, everywhere. Some people might say, it's like, but, but sharing the gospel, that is a lot harder than filling out a voter registration card or, or writing out a donation check to my favorite candidate. Yeah, preaching Christ ain't easy. But you will see virtually no other approach used by Christians throughout the New Testament to build Christ's kingdom. That's all they did. And, uh, and that spreading of the gospel, our spreading of the gospel, that is what Satan hates. 
every ticket to heaven or other tract that you share, every person that you invite to this church, that is going to be a full-throat attack on Satan's kingdom. That's not going to go unchallenged by him because we are going to gradually see converts to Christ's kingdom. Folks, this, this conflict is inevitable. And I believe the toppling of Satan's kingdom is being described in verse 22, where our Lord says, I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. Folks, that is an image of Christ our King overthrowing the strongholds of Satan, plundering the treasure of nations. The war is raging. The Lord says, I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. Interpretation, Christ is already one. We're assured that he is going to, to win a great victory. All that we have to do is advance the gospel. It's nothing fancy. All we have to do in whatever capacity we are able is advance the gospel. And the word of God is so powerful. When we do that, we are going to see God's enemies. They're going to become confounded. They aren't even going to know how to respond. They're going to start acting irrationally. The text says they're going to start slaying one another. Um, I don't think they'll go that far. But when their sister gets saved, they're going to ask, what just happened? Someone replies, well, we lost another one. And their sister Sally, they're trying to figure out what's, what's happened with her. She won't go out drinking with them anymore. They won't, she won't stay up all night partying with them in the evenings. All she wants to do is get up early and go to church and sing songs about Jesus. And they're like, we can't figure this person out. People are simply bewildered by Christian behavior. The natural man can't understand the things of Christ's kingdom. And sharing the gospel boldly and inviting people is all we have got to do. And we are going to be simply amazed at what we see God do. But it's not going to go unnoticed. And it's not going not to be unnoticed by the enemy. So each of us better be wearing the whole armor of God. Quickly, for review, our earlier scripture reading assured us our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It means we don't have a resentment towards the individuals, the people. They, they, they're captive. We can't blame them. All we can do is proclaim the gospel that will set them free. He says, our struggles against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and taking up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, that would make a good series someday. The armor of God, not today. We don't have time today. But that would be a great series, taking up the whole armor of God. Yet what this passage affirms from Ephesians is that we are in a bona fide spiritual battle. It is for real. And that our our only offensive weapon is the Word of God. And afterward, we have to pay attention to what the Apostle Paul continues to say. He says, with all prayer and petition. Petition is another form of prayer. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view... Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that what? That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. If you're going to pray for anything, pray I will be bold with the mystery of the gospel. And Paul says it, it's five times. He says, pray, petition, pray, petition, pray. And it's all with one goal in mind, that I might make known the gospel. That's it. Go make known the gospel. Pray for boldness is our only plan for battle. That's that simple. It's it's not that hard. I was asked, referring to prayer, I was asked this past Sunday about our prayer card. This is kind of new. If you're a new visitor, we added this just a few weeks ago at the bottom of tear-off. And I was asked this past Sunday about the prayer card. And, and the question was genuine, and I know it came from a source, uh, from a heart that I know is passionate about the gospel. It's just an inquiry. But I was asked, why is it attached to the bulletin? Isn't this kind of a waste of paper? Well, if you don't use it, Yeah. But that failure doesn't fall on me. It is attached so that it is harder for you to forget to take it home. If this is a little longer than you like, we had our engineers work on this, our team of engineers, and if it's a little longer than you like, they added a feature. Folds. But I was also asked, couldn't we just have a slot where the prayer cards sit, maybe in the back of the seat or whatever, uh, maybe by the door there where we have the tracks, couldn't we just have a spot where some of these prayer cards sit and people could grab them? Well, yeah, 
You mean keep a safe distance from the prayer card so that we can all ignore them when we pass by like we do the gospel tracts as we walk out. Sure, we could do that. But here's how the bulletin is designed to work. You take this home. On the top will be the memory verse, the theological question and answer for family night. That'll start again this next week for family night on Wednesdays. Um, By the way, a little shout out about Wednesdays through the summer. And I know summer, everybody goes every direction. And, and, And yet going on vacations, you get lost. We have had a great prayer summer. And the guys leading the devotionals and the families bringing their kids. It has been an awesome prayer experience. Uh, Families bringing all their kids in just so that we can pray on Wednesday evening. Um, Very encouraging throughout the summer. But here, the top will be the memory verse for family night. Uh, There's the handy-dandy calendar just below it. And then, uh, here's what you do. Spit on it. Stick it to your fridge. And that prayer card is going to stare back at you every time that you go to the fridge until you become bold enough to witness to somebody that week. You pray for other things too. Maybe we will get a pouch where you can get more of these. Name of the person, salvation prayer, maybe a few comments about how you met them. First name, bring it in, drop it in the offering boxes by the doors, or bring it with you on Wednesday night for prayer night, and we are going to pray for the names of the people whom we have witnessed to. Um, Folks, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. It is for the souls of men and women and their families. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, pray, petition, pray, petition, pray, that we will make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. We don't get to talk about prayer much. It'll be, it'll be on the topic in, when we get in the book of Acts. Boy, there's going to be some material there. Um, but this is just important. If you don't have any desire to pray with the church or witness to the lost, you are not in the battle. If you're offended by our sharing the gospel or don't think that Christians should be, should be aggressively pursuing souls for Christ, you are practicing a different religion than what is seen in the Bible. And for every church that has ever made a significant impact for the kingdom of God in redemption, prayer has always been credited as absolutely crucial. Go go read Charles Spurgeon, any of the works that that were very impactful, and they always credit uh, prayer as being crucial. In between Wednesday night's emphasis on prayer and through using this card, our desire is to make an evangelistic prayer exceedingly simple for you.
I'm going to ask the men to come forward to distribute the Lord's Supper. And in the serving of the bread in the cup, we remember how Christ, how His sinless body, how it was broken, how He was beaten, how His blood was spilled uh, for the sins of the world at Calvary. God's Son dying for the redemption of our sins and His resurrection from the dead on the third day, uh, it is the greatest event of all human history. Nothing else compares. Nothing else compares. The heavens and the earth shook, and the tremors continue to this day.